Well, we continue in our worship this morning with the last of our series in Return and Rebuild. We find ourselves in Zechariah chapter 4. So let's have God's Word open us up to Zechariah chapter 4, and we'll be going from verses 1 through 10. Again, that's Zechariah chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. And when you're there, please rise for the reading of God's Word. Zechariah 4, beginning in verse 1. Now this is the word of the Lord. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me, like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on the top of it, and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl, and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range throughout, through the whole earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, could you join me in prayer? Um, Father, we have just sung uh, that the truths of your word would prevail over our unbelief. Would you take these words, uh, words of truth, uh, imprint them onto our hearts, and have us see our lives, have us see our world through these words. Would you help us? Jesus, we believe, so would you help our unbelief? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, today uh, will be our last week in our sermon series on returning and rebuilding. And to conclude, I'd like to look at the message of hope and assurance found in Zechariah 4. Now, if you recall, I began this series by sharing how God is the God of re. He's the God of re. What do I mean? Well, the Bible throughout tells us that God is one who renews God is one who revives. God is one who rebuilds. He is one who resurrects. God is the God who recreates and who reconciles. He restores. God is the God of re. You know, God is like that relentless father or that resolute mother who with immutable strength says to their failing child, it's okay, let's do it again, let's do it again, let's do it again, let's try again. One more time, one more time, 
one more time. You know, if God is the God of re, then we as His people are often the God of d. We are discouraged. We are easily disheartened. We are dismayed. We are deflated. We are deterred, and we easily fall into despair. And what we find in today's passage is the God of renewal speaking words of affirmation and hope to a dejected and discouraged people. And he does so by essentially answering two core questions that the people are constantly asking themselves. These two questions are as follows. Number one, is this even possible? Is this even possible? And number two, will any of this make any difference? As the people are called to return and rebuild, the core questions that they are asking themselves, that they are wrestling with is, is this even possible? Can we do it? And the second, will any of this really make a difference? And the Lord, with the message of hope and renewal, answers these two very questions. First, uh, today's passage uh, begins with the vision of a lampstand. Now, a lampstand in the Old Testament symbolized the presence of God. I have one, uh, an example for us. A lampstand in the Old Testament looked like this. It was, it's a menorah. And this lampstand symbolized the presence of God. As the light was pure, as it was radiant, as it was life-giving, right? You can't have life without light. The lampstand represented the future hope that God would fully dwell with His people and that His full light would shine upon them and darkness and evil would be no more. And so the people, to constantly be reminded of this promise, the people were tasked with keeping this lampstand burning perpetually. This is from Exodus uh, 27, 20 to 21. It says this, You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light, that a lamp may regularly be set to burn. Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. I know recently it's become uh, more in vogue uh, to, to make things from scratch, especially during the pandemic. People got into all sorts of uh, things, making of, the making of ingredients, uh, whether it's uh, bread making. People got into making their own bread. Um, they started to despise store-bought bread. Uh, one of our young adults, um, she was learning how to make her own honey uh, from actual beehives. Uh, a few years back, our missionary John Lee in Cambodia, uh, he had his own chicken coop and chickens running around in his backyard uh, for fresh egg in the morning. Uh, sadly, it didn't end well. Uh, one night he left the cage open and uh, they were eaten by eagles. <laughs> um, not the eggs, but the chicken. Uh, but, you know, one item that actually wasn't trendy for people to make from scratch was oil. Why? Because oil is labor-intensive. It's time-consuming. About a pound of fresh olives will yield about 25 milliliters of oil. And so think about this idea, this command, this task of keeping the lampstand burning. 
On good days, this task was no problem. The people did it with great joy. But on bad days, it was a difficult task. It was laborious, and sometimes it felt meaningless. Why are we doing all this? You know, think about it. To keep the lampstand from burning, the people had to make olive oil from scratch. And they had to designate an entire tribe, the tribe of Levi, to keep this lampstand from burning night, night to day. It was labor-intensive, and it was extremely costly. Again, on good days when the sun is shining and the markets are green, the world is at peace, this was a joyous act. I mean, imagine living in the desert at this time in Palestine. At night, you see from miles away a small glowing light vanquishing all of the darkness. It was a hopeful sign. But in times of distress, in times of war, in famine, and inflation, in times of insecurity, keeping the lampstand burning was exhausting, depleting, and painstaking. And during Zechariah's time, there was great fear and anxiety whether or not they could keep the lights on. Church, I know this fear doesn't escape us as well. Can we keep the lights on? How long can we keep this going? These are questions that we ponder all too often, don't we? Whether it's a reference to financial matters. Can I keep literally my lights on? You know, often when uh, congregants, you know, they are blessed by the Lord and they are able to, uh, to purchase a new home, um, oftentimes they invite me to, to have just a short service to bless and pray for the home. And, uh, and in those conversations, there's a mix of joy and fear. There's great joy. You know, the Lord has blessed us. We, we, we um, got this new home. But then there's fear. What if I can't pay the mortgage? What if something happens and I lose it? Can I keep the lights on? Can I wholesomely provide for my family? Sometimes we ask this question in reference to relationships. How long can I keep this relationship going with this person or this group of people, with these family members? Sometimes we ask the question in reference to our walk with the Lord. Can I keep the spiritual light burning? In five years' time, will I still be a Christian? Will I still be in the pews, worshiping week in and week out, being reminded of His promises unto me? You know, we constantly ask these questions, and more likely than not, our disposition is one of doubt. But in the midst of this doubt, the Lord, He reassures us. See, in Zechariah's vision, there's a lampstand, and he tells us that there are seven lamps upon the lampstand. And verse 2 tells us on the top of this lampstand is a bowl that's filled with oil, And from this bowl are flowing 49 channels, seven channels per lamp. Next to the bowl, there are two olive trees. And the branches from these trees were supplying oil into the bowl. I have a a rough picture here that gives us somewhat of an idea of what's going on. There's the lampstand, seven lights, And this bowl on top of it that's filled with oil and 49 channels that's flowing from it, seven to each lamp, and next to it, two large olive trees with its branches reaching into the bowl. 
It's a picture of oil flowing from where? Freely from the source, the olive trees itself, into the bowl. And from that bowl, the oil is flowing downward by 49 channels, 49 conduits into the seven lamps. What does all this mean? What does this vision mean? The angel asks, and Zechariah says, I don't know. And the answer is this, Zechariah 4, 6, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. This is perhaps the most well-known verse in this book, Zechariah. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. The two words here, might and power, they're slightly different. There's a, difference, there's a different nuance to these words. The word for might is often used in the context of numbers. So think of a mighty uh, or, or a large army, lots of resources. Think of might as in the context of numbers, where you have plenty and abundance. Power is used in the context of ability, skill. In other words, God is saying this, not by abundance. The abundance of people or the abundance of money, not by ability or skill, but by my Holy Spirit the lights will remain on. The lights will remain on. It won't just remain on, but it will shine even brighter. What is God doing here? He is reassuring us that the responsibility of keeping the lights on is not ours. The task of rebuilding is not done by our own strength or our own will. Sure, the idea of keeping the lampstand burning can seem burdensome, can seem costly, But God tells us He is the one who supplies. He is the one who provides. And He gives us this this picture of oil that flows downstream. He reminds us that we cannot work our way up to the source, but it starts from the source, and there it flows downward. God, by His Spirit, will do His work of rebuilding the church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Church, I don't know how excited you all are about the task of rebuilding, rebuilding the ruins of worship, rebuilding the ruins of community. And this is probably a question that you've pondered as well. Is it worth it? Can we actually do it? If so, how long can we keep this thing going? How long can I keep my spiritual fire, this flickering light, from burning out? When we see the painful contrast between the glories of the past and the difficulties of the present, when we see the painful contrast of the glories of the past and the bleakness of the future, we're often left with doubt and discouragement. You know, in a moment of honesty, these are questions that I often ask myself as well. Just yesterday, I got a copy of um, this month's issue of Christianity Today. And Christianity Today is sort of the premier uh, magazine for all things uh, uh, Christianity-related. But the cover story of the magazine um, was about the huge increase in the number of pastors who have quit or wanted to quit ministry altogether. Uh, The article lists a number of reasons, but there's one line that kept echoing from that article in my heart. Um, I have the magazine cover for, for us all to see. It says, 
the article asked this question or, or made this statement, perhaps our greatest concern shouldn't be empty pulpits. Our greatest concern shouldn't be pastors quitting, but rather empty pastors standing in them. For some reason, I just couldn't get that line out of my head. Our concern shouldn't be empty pulpits, but empty pastors standing in them. Uh, Unrelated to this cover piece, the Barna Group just published a survey last week that showed that uh, 42% of pastors considered quitting full-time ministry within the last year. So, I mean, you do the math. We have two pastors. 42% means uh, three-quarters of one of us had that thought. See, through Zechariah 4, what God is telling us is this. As we ask these questions, can we do it? Is it possible? How long can we keep this thing going? Through Zechariah 4, God is telling us to, hey, zoom out. Zoom out. We're focusing on the task of keeping this lampstand going, but zoom out, and what do you see? You see oil channels. You see the bowl on top. Zoom out, and what do you see even further? You see olive trees. You see branches that are flowing into this bowl, and you see God and His commitment. You see that the source of strength and supply is not from inward. It's not from downward, upward, but where is it? It's from God Himself. God, He is committed to this rebuilding project. God loves the church more than you and me. He is our strength and our supply. Archbishop William Temple said this, It's no good giving me a play like Hamlet or King Lear and telling me to write a play like that. Shakespeare could do it, I can't. And it's no good showing me a life like the life of Jesus and telling me to live a life like that. Jesus could do it. I can't. But if the genius of Shakespeare could come and live in me, then I can write plays like this. And if the Spirit could come into me, then I could live a life like His. See, God in Zechariah 4 is telling us that we accomplish this task not by our power, not by our might, but by His Holy Spirit. The question, can we even do it, is answered by the Lord, yes, yes, by His Spirit. That is how God dispels our discouragement. First, reminding us that He is our strength. He answers the pressing question, is it even possible? Yes, by His Spirit. The second question that plagued the people was this, will any of this make a difference? If you recall, the rebuilding project wasn't going too well, and one of the main reasons was the size, the size of the project. It was so small, so meager in comparison to the previous temple. And so the people were thinking, you know what, this isn't significant. This isn't important. None of this will make a difference. Our impact is minimal. We are moving pebbles in comparison. We are susceptible to this thought, aren't we? We often ask the question, what difference does it make? What difference does this all make? You know, if we help one more refugee family, what does that mean? So what? There are 84 more million refugees. If we adopt 
or foster an orphan. What does that mean? One orphan out of 153 million orphans. Okay, I help one homeless guy on the street. What does that mean? What difference does that mean? We have half a million homeless people in the United States alone. What difference does it make if I serve, if I help others, if I reach out, if I send an email, if I encourage someone, if I text someone who's been struggling, if I come to church or not, what difference does this make? Would this make any difference at all? Often we're plagued with these questions. Oh, well, there are so many people helping, volunteering, serving. what's, What's one? What if I get involved or not? That doesn't really make a difference. I help one homeless person, but what about the next? I help one orphan, but what about the next? Will any of this make a difference? And to that, God answers yes. Look with me at Zechariah 4.10. He says this, For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. God says this, listen, for those of you who've despised the day of small things, you are going to rejoice. Why? Because that small task, this small building, this small mundane task will be expanded. See, what God doesn't, God doesn't say here, listen, you know what? Let's scratch this project. I'm going to change your plans, and I'm going to give you this amazing vision that has global impact. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say, listen, you know what? Let's change this. Let's do greater things than this. You know what? How big is the temple? Let's triple it. Let's quadruple it. He doesn't say that. He keeps the task at hand, that small, medial task, and he says this, that task that you're doing will have eternal impact. See, there's this understanding that the people will continue with their seemingly medial and insignificant tasks. But these actions, these small tasks, will make a huge difference because God will breathe greater significance into the small actions that we are called to do. I shared this story uh, sometime last year, but uh, it's about a man who uh, lived in Scotland who came to faith in the Lord. Uh, He was a non-believer. He was hired as an employee for a company. And every morning as he walked to his office, he had to pass by the secretary's office. And in that secretary's office, there were three women who were typing away. This is back in the day before computers, and so they were typing on these old typewriters. There were these metal machines that made a lot of noise, clicking and clanging. And this man had very sensitive ears, and as he walked to his office every day, he noticed that these three women were typing away fervently, click, clack, click, clack, click, clack. But he noticed one day that there was this one typist of those three who always typed consistently. She stopped without breaks. She was going at the same pace. It was the same rhythm every day. The other two would stop here and there, go back here and there, speed up and slow down. But this one typist, she was different. She was consistent. She typed as if she was typing to a rhythm, a melody. He heard this every morning passing by his office, and it would bother him so much. And he began to think and ask himself the question, what is going on? And so he asked the manager one day, hey, who is that one lady who types so consistently? How does she do it? The boss replied simply, she's a Christian. 
and he walked away. He heard that and he was puzzled. What on earth is the connection between the way this woman works, this typing task, this small task as a typist? What is the connection between that and what she believes on a Sunday? So he approaches her one day and he discovers that this woman didn't just believe these things on a Sunday. She didn't just work to get a paycheck, but she said that she was working for her Lord, to please her Lord in the most ordinary and mundane context, and for her that was typing faithfully. That person came to know the Lord eventually, and that man became a pastor, and years later he witnessed to a young man, a teenager by the name of Sinclair Ferguson. For those of you who don't know, Sinclair Ferguson is a well-known Scottish Presbyterian theologian and pastor who's had tremendous influence on the church today. And even to this day, Dr. Sinclair Ferguson attributes his conversion to that one woman in Scotland who was typing so faithfully. I know currently for us, the world is all about maximizing opportunity, maximizing impact. The question that the world tells us to ask is, how can I take the least amount of resources and have the greatest impact? How can I squeeze every lemon for all of its juice? You know, while on special occasions, this type of entrepreneurial thinking can aid and help the church, most of the time, the church, we are not about maximizing impact. We are not about maximizing one's life. That task is for God to do. The task, nine out of ten times for us as Christians, is to simply be faithful in the small and mundane tasks and callings that we have. Nine out of ten times, the calling is simply to be faithful. To be faithful as a husband, to be faithful as a wife, to be faithful as a son, as a daughter, to be faithful as a friend in the small and everyday tasks that we are given. I mean, think about the gospel. If I were to ask you, hey, church, let's come up with a plan. Let's come up with a plan, and let's think, how can we have the most impact? How can we create the most influential person to ever change, to, to change all of history? What would you say? What person would you come up with? If we could create a person that can change the course of history, who would we say? Well, the person has to have uh, storytelling abilities like Steve Jobs. They have to have diplomacy skills like Margaret Thatcher. They have the engineering abilities of Elon Musk. That's the type of person we would create. But would you do it the way Jesus did? Born in a major uneducated, lived among the masses, a career lasting three years, ultimately to end by dying on a cross, misunderstood, abused, and scapegoated? Would that be our plan? Would we do it the way Jesus did? But that's what Jesus did. He did it. And he was. He was the most impactful person. See, that's, friends, that is the power of the gospel. That the life, death, and resurrection of the Son of God is the power to save for all those, for all those who believe. 
It's the power to save all those who believe, the small steps. It's not the power to save those who have the same impact, not the power to save those who can change the world, not the power to save those who solve world hunger or get rid of climate change. No, it's for all those who believe, small steps. You know, this question that we ask ourselves, right, is it even possible? Can we do this? Will this make any difference? The question that we ask were actually transformed into statements on the lips of Jesus as he faced the task of redeeming the church as he stood before the cross. When we asked the question, is it even possible for Jesus, it was, it is possible. When we asked the question, will it make any difference at all for Jesus, it's a statement, it will make a difference. With these statements, he went to the cross. You know, Zechariah Uh, has become recently one of my favorite books uh, because the words and the prophecies that are found in this book that seem ordinary and insignificant as it speaks to a dejected and discouraged people, these words, ordinary words, it actually points to something much more glorious. It points to something much more eternal. It points to Jesus' first and second coming. I have a few verses for you here. Let me know if they remind you of anything. Zechariah 9.9, as he's speaking about what is going to happen. He says this, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fall of a donkey. It's speaking of Jesus riding into Jerusalem to face the cross. Or Zechariah 12.10, And I will pour out a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. What does this remind you of? These are the exact words that are uttered as Jesus is on the cross and they pierce his side and blood flows from him. Or if you go to Zechariah 14, 6 and 9, it says this, On that day there shall be no light, cold or frost. There shall be a unique, unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor light. But at evening time there shall be light. On that day living water shall flow from Jerusalem. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. What does this remind you of? Well, when you get to the last book in the Bible, Revelation, as it speaks of what is going to happen when the kingdom returns, where does John get this vision from? He gets it from Zechariah 14. This idea that there will no longer be day or night. Why? Because God will dwell with his people. The fullness of his glory and his light will shine so bright that there will be no day, there will be no, light, no night. See, Zechariah is telling us that what we do today matters. The small things that the Lord calls us to, the small steps, the small victories They will have eternal impact, not because we are impactful as a people, but because God himself, he is faithful. I mean, imagine getting to heaven. The day you arrive at heaven and you see all the people that you've had a small yet eternal impact on. Imagine getting to heaven and seeing all the people that will come up to you and say, you know, you shared the gospel with me, you prayed for me. You've helped me. 
When you were driving, you flipped me off, and that made me come to Christ. You know, all the small ways that had an eternal impact. And imagine all the ways that you will be reminded and will know of how others have had an eternal impact on you. When we get to heaven, we will see the mosaic of all the small actions that are echoing throughout eternity of what we have done. And our song will not be, we have done this, but our song would be, the Lord has done this. He has taken the small, he has taken the mundane, he has taken the ordinary, and he has infused into it eternal significance. That is what the Lord is calling the church to partake in. And oftentimes when I uh, am deep in prayer, there's this constant um, thought and temptation that falls upon me that I have to uh, rigorously and intentionally take away. Uh, when I'm in prayer, there's, there's this idea that comes to mind like, will this make any difference? Will this make any difference? When I have a laundry list of things to do, emails to uh, reply to, meetings to attend, my mind often drifts to, wait, I need to get to those things. I need to do those things. And then the thought, will this make any impact? I'm reminded that it does. That if you despise the small things, you will one, one day rejoice, knowing that the Lord in His faithfulness will take these things and infuse in them eternal significance. Ernest Hemingway, in his piece, For Whom the Bell Tolls, writes this, Today is only one day in all the days that will ever be. But what will happen in all the other days that will ever come can depend on what you do today. Today is but one day in all the other days that will ever be, but what will happen in all the other days that ever come can depend on what you do today. Church, instead of thinking, how can we maximize our impact? How can we have the greatest amount of significance? Friends, church, let us be faithful to the small task that we are given today to love one another, to parent faithfully, to love our family, our friends, to reach out to those around us, to help those whom the Lord has called us into contact with. The context that the Lord has placed you in, the calling that the Lord has given you this day, may you be faithful to those things. And may God, by His greatness and His faithfulness, infuse eternal significance into those things. Would you join me in prayer at this time? If uh, we could just spend a few minutes, uh, once again, just responding in prayer. Um, If we can this morning, you know, really shift our thought from asking You know, will this make any difference at all? Would you hear these words? That the small things matter, that they are significant. That is the power of the gospel. To take something that seems like defeat, to take something that seems insignificant, to take something that seems like it would completely disappear in history, and to save those who believe. 
Would you take a few minutes responding in prayer at this time? What is the task that the Lord has placed before you this day? What are the responsibilities that the Lord has called you to? In what way is he asking you to rebuild, to partake in this rebuilding project? And instead of thinking, you know, what impact will this have? Would you see the greatness of our God? Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. Would you take a few minutes at this time to respond in prayer? Let's pray.